Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. And Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. I was recently sharing a, the gospel with a, a couple, and, and I asked them about their faith, and the conversation became really awkward. In fact, as a pastor, conversations get really awkward fast. So I go out and I, you know, normally, you know, I'll have dinner or, you know, I'm out in public and people act the way they act. And then they find out that I'm a pastor and suddenly they're like, oh, I'm sorry for cussing. Oh, I'm sorry for this. You know, and they just get really weird around me. Right. So conversations with me tend to get really weird. Right. But, but they both, right. When I asked them about the gospel, they, they talked about how they were forced to go to church when they were kids and they, they hemmed and they hawed about the things that they believe in. And you can tell they didn't really have a good handle on it, right? But, but, but as it was a search for the right answer, you know, to, the, to an essay question that they didn't study for, right? right? They, they worked their thoughts out and, as they were talking and they finally just settled on this common objection to the Christian faith. And that, that objection that they used was, well, many of the Christians I've been around just, they just think that they're better than everybody else, right? And this perhaps is one of the biggest criticisms leveled against Christianity and the church, that many Christians think that they're just better than everyone else, that Christians tend to be holier than thou, right? That Christians tend to be arrogant and even abusive toward unbelievers. And if you've been a Christian, for any length of time in your own life, you have heard these kinds of comments. Maybe you've heard them from your friends. Maybe you've heard them from your neighbors. or your, Even your family members have said things like that. I know some of my family members have. Or maybe it's just strangers you share the gospel with. Right? Maybe you even heard it from people who call themselves Christians. So-called Christians who use this objection to justify why they never, ever come to church. They use this as a reason to, not, to justify never gathering together with a family of God. I mean, because really, who wants to be around a bunch of people who think they're better than everyone else? I mean, I'm just too good for that. 
But the truth is, I think we've all heard it before. And the reason why we've heard this and the reason why this criticism of Christians is so widespread in the wider world that calls itself Christian is because this statement at times is true. And, and we know it because we've all experienced it. We have met people who claim to follow Christ who act as if they are better than everyone else. People who go to church who, who exemplify that very attitude of what it means to be holier than thou. People who use their faith as an excuse for their bad behavior and their bad attitudes and their condescension towards people. I remember listening to a story of a man who was attending a recovery meeting at a, at a church somewhere, and he was standing outside of the building taking a smoke break. And he, he said, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be here and in, in work on my recovery. I'm grateful for this church. In fact, I really need to get connected to, to a church, and this is probably a good place to start. And about that time, a woman who was a member of the church, a long-standing member of the church, came up to him and began to yell at him and berate him for smoking on the church property because that was holy ground. We've all experienced those kinds of people who think that they're better than other people. And, and, and I understand, right? I'm not talking about Christians who lovingly call sin what it is. There are a lot of people who will say that talking about sin and the wrath of God is arrogance, but it's not, right? And I'm not talking about those who call people to repent and believe the gospel. And I'm not talking about Christians who lovingly tell the truth about the law of God to a culture that is bent on destroying the image of God in humanity. And I'm not talking about true Christians who genuinely love people, sinful people enough to tell them the unvarnished truth and won't give consent to sinful actions and lifestyles, but still are very, still loving about it. What I'm, what I'm talking about is that self-righteous person who thinks, right, just because they joined a church or made a profession of faith or, or serve in some kind of ministry or you know, have attended every church service that the doors have been open for the last 20 years, right? who think that their religious activity makes them somehow superior to people around them. Well, I attend four Bible studies a week. <laughs> well, I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and pray four hours a day. Well, I'm the largest contributor to the tithe in this church. Well, I only read the King James Version of the Bible. There are people who call upon the name of the Christ who think that their relationship with him has given them the right some, for some reason to look down their noses in disdain at certain people around them, forgetting that everything in their relationship with God has always been based on one simple, immutable truth. And that is... We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are kept safe by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we have nothing, nothing, nothing about which we can boast. The Christian has nothing in his life that he can point to that says that makes me better, you know, than anyone else. The only difference between a Christian who is redeemed by Christ and the wretch who is hell-bound, the only difference is the grace of God. That is the essential difference. Unbelievers can, 
have high moral standards, just like Christians can. Did you know that? There are some some unbelievers who actually behave better and are more moral than many Christians we know. And people in false religions can homeschool their kids like Christians do. Atheists can pass out food to the homeless and help the less fortunate, just like Christians can. People who are members of cults can pray and read their Bibles and attend church services and give a tithe and fold bulletins and sing in the choir and serve in leadership just like Christians can. The only difference between a Christian who is redeemed by Christ and the wretch who is hellbound is the grace of God. The undeserved, unmerited grace of God. And that's the overarching theme that we're going to see in this text today. As Paul continues to address the issue of the Jews rejecting Christ in chapter 11. And just as a reminder, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome for three main reasons. First, he wanted to build a relationship with the Roman church so that he could use that as a launch pad to go further west with the gospel. Secondly, he wanted to clearly explain the gospel which he does in chapters 1 through 8. In chapters 1 through 8, he impacts the, in detail what the gospel is, the blessings the gospel gives, how the gospel works, the freedom that the gospel bestows, and the unshakable hope that those who believe in the gospel have. It is the greatest exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. And then the third reason he wrote Romans is because he wanted to bring healing to the tension in the Roman church between the Jews and the Gentiles, because there was a great tension between these two groups for a couple of reasons. First, the Roman church was started by by Jews who were present on the day of Pentecost. And they were converted and went home and started a church. And that church was initially predominantly Jewish in, in its leadership. But the Roman emperor Claudius, about AD 41, kicked the Jews out of Rome that lasted for just a little over a decade, leaving the church to be led primarily by Gentiles. And so when the Jews came back, and what they found was a thriving church made up of almost exclusively Gentiles. And as they began to reintegrate back into the church, there was no longer any Jews in primary leadership and, and their cultural distinction as Jews, which by the way is what got them kicked out of Rome in the first place, right, made their unity in the church challenging. And so there there was this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. And then the second reason is the vast majority of the Jews rejected the gospel. And they rejected Christ. And not only did they reject Christ, but they persecuted Christians. They they had arrested, even put many of them to death, which which was Paul's own story, if you remember. This obviously added to the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And by the way, persecution of Christians by the Jews is something that still exists even today. We don't really think about it, but it still happens. In Israel right now, Christian gatherings are being met with protests by Orthodox Jews, right? Because they still hate Christ. They hate the name Jesus or Yeshua. They hate it, right? And oftentimes these protests turn vulgar, hateful, and even at times violent. You see, the Jewish rejection of the gospel isn't isn't simply an intellectual disagreement about theology. It's a deep-seated sense of identity and an emotional rejection as well. Because the the majority of the Jews hate Christ and what he stood for, just like Paul did. 
They didn't just didn't just dislike Jesus. They didn't just like, hey, I don't really like those people. They hated the Christians and they hated Jesus. But unlike Paul, whose heart was changed, most of the Jews rejected the gospel altogether. And this rejection was troublesome for the church because it was a huge objection to the gospel, an objection that threatened to undermine the entire Christian faith. As we've talked about, the essence of this objection is, is if the gospel is true and we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, apart from our works and obedience to the law, then why do so many Jews who were part of that nation, set apart by God, why do they reject the gospel? Because the fact is the gospel came through the Jews. And it came to the Jews first, as Paul says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Not to mention, Jesus himself was ethnically, nationally, and religiously Jewish. John says that he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. And also, on top of that, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, bear witness to the gospel. Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness to the gospel. The fact is, there isn't anything any there isn't anything more Jewish in all of Judaism than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there are a lot of Jewish people that would like really be mad at me for saying that, but it's the truth. And so the gospel, if it's true, right, then why do so many Jewish people who were set apart by God and were physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the very people who were given the scriptures and the Mosaic covenant that points to the gospel, why do they then reject it on such a large scale? Now, this objection was so big and important that Paul took three chapters to address it. And and the first thing that Paul does is he makes it clear that being part of the family of God has never been about genetics or nationality. God's people have always been his elect. And God chooses who are his people on the basis of his sovereign wisdom and election because he is the creator. He has the right to do that. As, it's, as, Paul, as the scripture says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Right? As Paul even says to, to the Jews who object, who are you to question God? And then Paul makes it clear that the Gentiles have been drawn into the family of God by God through faith while ethnic religious Jews are excluded from the family because they pursue self-righteousness by works rather than the gospel of grace. And he explains in chapter 10 that salvation is simply a matter of faith apart from works. The simple promise of the gospel is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Christ by faith, regardless of their their national identity, whether they're Jew or Gentile, if they will call upon, the, upon Christ, they will be saved. But most Jews refused to call. They rejected Christ because their hearts were hard. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah, who says of Israel, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. And so the answer to the objection is, if the gospel is true, then why do so many Jews reject it? It's simply this, they have hard, impenitent hearts of stone. And as we have said, their hearts were so hard that they're the ones who put Christ to death and persecuted the church, which then leads to another issue. And that is because the Jews were so hard-hearted and rejected Christ, it seemed to many, especially the Christian 
the Gentiles in the Christian faith, it seemed to many of them as if God had given up on the Jews. It seemed that evangelizing was a hopeless endeavor. And even worse, many in the early church began to look down on ethnic Jews. They saw the rejection of Christ and the persecution of Christians as justification for thinking, we're better than them. And so Paul addresses that issue. And he does so first by letting the Roman church know that God is not done with ethnic Israel. And God has used the failure of Israel to bring the Gentiles to faith, right? But that had a purpose, which was to draw more Jews in the family of God, resulting in a greater blessing for the world. And then second, Paul makes it clear that God has the power to bring even the hardest of heart to faith. And God will bring many Jews to faith before he's done. And then thirdly, Paul reminds the church, particularly the Gentiles, that no one in the family of God, I want you to hear me, he reminds them that no one in the family of God has the right to be arrogant and prideful about their relationship with God. Right? Because the difference between those who have found the righteousness of God and those who, who do not have a righteousness with God is ultimately grace. That's the difference. And that's what we see in the text today. So looking at chapter 11, verse 17, Paul writes, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Now, obviously there is a whole lot to unpack here. And I want you to know there's a lot more to unpack here than we will be able to do in one sermon but I'm not going to spend the next six weeks on this, right? I'm going to talk about the things I think are essential for, for our growth as a church family, beginning with the easy stuff. Notice Paul says, do not be arrogant. Do not become proud. The first thing that we need to come to terms with is the fact that Christians never have a cause, never have a cause to be prideful, arrogant, or boastful in their relationship with God. And I'm going to repeat that simply because this truth needs to be something that we need to write down and memorize and have that become part of our DNA and should affect how we live the rest of our lives and should affect how we treat everyone else around us. It should affect how we view the world. Christians never, ever, ever, ever have a cause to be prideful or arrogant or boastful in their relationship with God. That right there is worth the price of admission. If you didn't get anything else out of the sermon today, that's enough to, to help you grow in your relationship with him. You'll be a better Christian if that becomes part of your life right there. Why? Because our relationship with God is completely due to his grace. Our relationship with God is due completely and totally and unequivocally to the grace that he has had for us. And that is why... Right? Having a right theology of God and a right theology of salvation is important because the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is 100% the work of God. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
He who began a good work in you, he began it. He's faithful to complete it. He is the one who changes hard hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. He is the one who enables us to see God for who he is and then allows us to see who we are in light of who God is and then allows us to see our overwhelming, desperate need for Christ. And it is God who grants us repentance and the gift of faith. And yes, it is true. We must respond to the gospel and we must exercise faith in God and we must choose him. It is true. We must believe the gospel. But even our choosing and believing and our faith in God are still a gift from his sovereign hand. God is the one who grants the gift of faith. Our hearts are changed supernaturally by God and we exercise faith because God has chosen to enable us to believe. Again, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter two? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now listen, right? Full stop, right? And then he goes, and this, all that he just said, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Your faith is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Even your faith that you must exercise in your free will is a gift from God from his sovereign hand. And, and, and on that basis, it's because of that, then there, you don't have any room to be prideful or arrogant because salvation then is all what God did, not what you did. It's the sovereign work of God. As Horatius Bonner once wrote, there can be no grace when there is no sovereignty. Deny God's right to choose whom he will and you will deny his right to save whom he will. Deny his right to save whom he will, you deny that salvation is of grace. If salvation is made to hinge upon any merit or fitness of man seen or foreseen, grace is at an end. Salvation is all of grace. But Pastor Sherman, this is a diatribe, by the way. But Pastor Sherman, <laughs> what you're saying doesn't make any sense because what you're saying is God is sovereign and chooses and ordains salvation to whom he wills, but somehow man still is free and is responsible for his choices and is obligated to exercise faith in Christ. That's exactly what I'm saying. But that doesn't make any sense because that's contradictory. Well, here's the thing. That's precisely what the scriptures teach us. That God is sovereign, but man still must exercise faith. That God is in control, but man is still responsible for his own actions. In fact, what I find really helpful in, in dealing with this is, is turning to our confession. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 3 on God's decree says it very clearly. He says, for, from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. And he did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. <clears throat> Yet God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree, and this is where you really need to pay attention, this decree does not violate the will of the creature. Our confession makes it really clear. The, the scriptures make, tell us that God is in control, but man is still responsible and still has a free will. Right? In other words, God is completely sovereign and, and, and in control, but man still must exercise his will. And by the way, we see this in the text before us. 
It's not just something that's pulled out of thin air. If you'll look with me at verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. What we see in this text is both God's sovereignty and man's free will bringing about God's intended aim to graft in the Gentiles. Look what the language. God broke off unbelieving branches so that, right? That's, that's a purpose statement, right? So that the Gentiles might be grafted in. God in his sovereignty ordained for this to happen. He ordained that these hard-hearted Jews would be cut off from, from his family in order to include Gentiles into his family. God decreed it, ordained it, and brought it about. But the basis of their being cut off was their own responsibility. Paul says it was their unbelief. See, God didn't make them not believe. They're the ones that chose to reject the gospel. The truth that we must understand is the Bible makes clear is that both are true. Man is free and responsible for his actions, but God is sovereign and ordains all that comes to pass. Again, I just want you to hear the language of the confession again in, that, in light of that. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. And he did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, yet God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature. I think it's really very clear. And Paul makes this point right, and drives home this point, right, a point that we as followers of Christ must affirm and believe is, is that Christians just never have a cause to be prideful or arrogant or boastful in our relationship with God because we didn't do anything to earn it. It is all of grace. And the only difference between those who trust in Christ and those who don't is that grace. We have not done anything on our own to, to, to merit it. Even the faith that we exercise is still... A gift. And what that means is we don't have the right then for any reason to look down the noses, our noses, at anyone else. We don't have the right to be mean or hateful or ingracious to anyone, even those who hate Christ and even those who hate us. Even those who mock our faith and call us names. Even those who will make your blood boil as you see videos during Pride Month where, where people have made it their mission to the, do the most blasphemous and say the most blasphemous things that they possibly can about Christ. We don't have the right to be arrogant in our relationship with God toward even them because we have no reason to boast except for the cross of Christ because God rescued us even though we were just as undeserving as they are, God rescued us in spite of us. 
Again, Ephesians chapter two, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and when she once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Doesn't that sound just like what's going on in the world around us right now? Right? And we're by nature children wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I know that I'm saying this repeatedly, but we have to live this out. There is nothing we did or possessed that caused God to change his mind about us, right? He didn't wake up one day and go, wow, that was a really nice thing they did. You know what? I might save them. Right? He simply chose us by his sovereign grace. And the light, and in light of that, there's never any reason for us to be bitter or hateful toward anyone because of our faith. Now understand, there will people, there are people who will hear what I'm saying and give a hearty amen. But then they'll take what I'm saying and the word of God and twist, twist the scriptures in order to say that you don't even have the right to preach because that's arrogant. Because it's arrogant to call people to repent. It's arrogant to say certain lifestyles are sin. That, that it's arrogance on your part because you won't condone certain behaviors or fly a certain flag in your church. It's arrogance because you say that Jesus is the only way. It's arrogance when you say that the Bible is the only infallible, inerrant revelation of God. There are people, including some who call themselves Christians, who will say that it's arrogant to talk about sin and the wrath of God and call people to repent and call people to deny the, their flesh and follow Christ and trust in Him alone. <clears throat> but understand, that's not what arrogance is. Telling people the truth, even when the truth hurts, is not arrogant. It's loving, actually. You might not feel like it. Now, a person can certainly preach on sin and the law of God and call people to repent and believe the gospel and be arrogant, but it's not the preaching of the truth that makes them arrogant. It's the hardness of their hearts that makes them arrogant. Because that arrogance that people feel, that pride that people feel is always rooted in some sense of self-righteousness. Almost everyone, almost every person who calls himself a Christian who looks down their noses at someone else in arrogance thinks of themselves too highly. And they think that, they, that, that there must be a reason, at least subconsciously they think, that there must be a reason why God rescued them. Well, I pray to prayer, right? I attend church every week. I, I attend this kind of church. I have this kind of theology. Right? I, I do this in ministry and, and I have this education and I, I follow these, this group of people and, and, and I'm not like other Christians. I actually live out my faith and, and, and do stuff and not just talk about it. Right? I feed the homeless. I, I pray for 30 minutes every day. I, I, do, you know, I actually even study the Bible in Greek. I'm a Christian, so that means I'm better than you. They don't say it that way, but that's what, that's what it means. Those who were arrogant and prideful and hateful towards sinners ultimately believed that something in them caused God to love them. And on and and or, or that they believed that they're, you know, that they're just so spiritual that they saw the truth of the gospel and that they chose by their own volition without God actually pushing them to come to faith. 
because, you know, somehow they were just smarter than everyone else around them. By the way, we live in a world right now where there are a lot of people who think they're smarter than everybody else. It is frustrating to talk to people like that. I, you know, I mean, it is. It's like you, you, you ask people, are you a good person? Bad person? I'm a good person, right? Are you above average intelligence or below average? Everybody will say I'm above average intelligence. I'm smarter than most everybody else. It's frustrating. But people who think that they're smarter than everybody else, or there are people who think that they are just, they're just more sensitive to the leading of the spirit than everyone else. That there's something in them that they did or had that caused God to have favor on them. But there, when you read the scriptures backwards and forwards, right, in the Greek or the Hebrew or whatever language you want to read it in, you will not find that. There's nothing we have to boast in. We have nothing to point to to say, I did that. That's why God loves me. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a truth that Paul's driving home to the Gentiles in the Roman church. The Jews were an easy target because they were rejected by because they rejected Christ and they persecuted the church. But they were also an easy target because at the time the Romans just didn't like them. Nationally, the Romans and 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 ethnically the Romans just didn't like them. Why? Because the Jews just refused to assimilate into culture. They were still Jewish. They refused to conform to, to Roman cultural norms. They just wouldn't go along. And so the Gentiles were already predisposed to dislike the Jews. They already had that bias. And to make matters worse, to make it even worse, is the Jews didn't help themselves because they were arrogant themselves. They saw themselves as morally superior in every way. They believed themselves to be God's special chosen people simply because they were Jews and they basked in their self-righteousness. They were, they, were, they were easy people to despise because they were arrogant towards other people. And given the fact that they rejected the gospel and, and seemed they would never turn to Christ, it was easy to write them off and be arrogant towards them. But Paul warns against this. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Yes, it is true that they were cut off so you could be included, but you didn't do anything to merit that grace. You were included because God chose to include you. And then Paul warns, he says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Everybody wants to talk about kindness, but nobody wants to talk about his severity, right? Severity towards those who have fallen but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Paul warns the Gentiles against their arrogance against the Jews because that arrogance is rooted in self-righteousness, which is the same sin that the Jews were guilty of. That's what prevented them to come to the gospel. It was their self-righteousness. You see, the Jews were not guilty of denying God's existence like the atheists did, right? And the Jews weren't guilty of dismissing God's law because they valued God's law and they worked hard to try to keep the law, even though they couldn't. Their sin, as Paul says, was unbelief. And not unbelief in the scriptures. It was unbelief not in God, but rather it was an unbelief in the truth that they had nothing to boast about. 
That they, they were fallen wretches like the rest of us, deserving God's wrath. They failed to see that salvation is of God and they can contribute nothing to their salvation except the sin that made it necessary. They failed to see that all they could offer God was filthy rags, as their own prophet said. They believed that they were deserving of God's favor because of their ethnicity and their national identity and their religiosity. A lot of people today still think that they're right with God because they're really, really religious. And now the Gentiles, because of the temptation to look down on the Jews, ran the risk of the same kind of arrogance and the same kind of self-righteousness. Because the only way to look down your nose in disdain is, is, is someone to think that, they're, that you're better than someone else. And the only way for you to, to have that posture is, is to believe that your relationship with God is based on some form of self-righteousness. Now understand, Paul, this warning that Paul gives, I want you to hear me. This is not a warning against true Christians falling away. Okay? Some will say, well, this is obviously you know, a scripture that points to the fact that you can lose your salvation. In order for that to be true, you have to take the New Testament and completely turn it up on its head. And you have to undo the vast majority of what Paul has said and what Jesus himself has said. A person who's genuinely born again cannot unsave themselves. The fact is, you don't have the power to save yourself in the first place. Salvation is the work of the entire triune God. God the Father ordained it in eternity past. God the Son came into history and paid for your redemption by His own blood. And then the Holy Spirit comes and changes your heart and gives you a brand new nature and doesn't leave you alone. He comes and lives inside of you, convicting you, leading you, and guiding you. Are you trying to tell me that if God's going to go to that trouble, He's just going to let you just walk away? Not to mention God is all-knowing and all-powerful, which means why would He bring you into the kingdom only simply to kick you out? The truth is a believer cannot lose his salvation because God is the author and sustainer of that salvation. And so this isn't a warning against true believers falling away. This is a warning for us to examine our hearts when we find ourselves committing this kind of a sin. As Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. Because if we find that we are arrogant towards other people, it's probably because we are self-righteous in some fashion. And that would be reason to ask ourselves, do I really understand the gospel? Am I really believing and holding on to the gospel? Right? This is a good time, by the way, whenever you find yourself feeling arrogant or prideful, that's a good time for you to remind yourself of the gospel, which is the truth that we are all sinners who have rebelled against a holy, righteous, and just God. And because of that, we rightly deserve his wrath like every other person who has ever lived in the entire history of humanity except for one, and that's Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, there's not anything, there's not anything, there's not anything we can do on our own to fix it. We cannot make God love us. We can't change his attitude towards us. Our efforts will not fix anything in a relationship with God. There's nothing to make God love us. And so we truly are hopeless and helpless. But God, two of my favorite words in the whole Bible, but God, in His grace and mercy, sent Jesus into the world to live a righteous life for us and to die for our sins. And He sent Him to do for us the things we can't do for ourselves. And then rose Him up three days later, proving that sin and death had been conquered and that those who trust in Him are vindicated. And the promise is this, that those who repent and believe the gospel will be saved. 
period. That's it. Not those who believe, repent and believe the gospel and attend every church service for the rest of their life. That's not what it says. The only basis for a relationship with God is grace through faith. And in light of that, we have nothing to boast about and nothing to be arrogant about. But in spite of that, instead of looking to Christ and his work as the basis of salvation, do you sometimes look at what, look at your own morality or your religiousness or your, your own self-righteousness as a reason to boast? The truth is, if you find yourself that you have been arrogant or prideful towards others because of your faith, you might, you might not have really fully understood the gospel. And the reason why I bring this up over and over again and talk about this so often is because I'm telling you, as much as I've preached the gospel and I have said the words of the gospel to people, it is amazing to me how many people still think that there's still something they have to do in themselves. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting right with God because I'm, you know, I gave up, you know, I gave up drinking beer or I stopped cussing. It's like, do you not understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I feel like Jackie Chan, or no, uh, Chris Tucker in that Jackie Chan movie. Remember that? You might not have understood the gospel if you find yourself, you know, feeling self-righteous because of your relationship with God, in which case you need to hear the gospel again and repent of that self-righteousness and believe the gospel. Now with that, Paul has continued to point out that God is not done with ethnic Israel, even, even more reason not to be arrogant toward them. Right? Because as we talked about last week, there's no one that's beyond the reach of God's mercy. Now, there is a whole lot more to this text to talk about that we, more than we have time for, but there's one last thing I just want to just close with. I think that will help kind of keep this in perspective. And really, it's the easiest part of this whole thing to overlook. Notice what Paul says in verse 24. For if you were cut off what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own wild tree, their own olive tree? When Paul talks about this grafting of wild olive shoots into a cultivated tree, which, by the way, is a symbol of the family of God, what many people don't realize is that what Paul is saying is actually the opposite of what it, how it was actually done. It was actually the opposite of how they, they, they cultivated olives. They took cultivated fruit-bearing branches and grafted them into wild olive trees to make them productive. That's how it was done. But Paul says it's the other way around. By the way, this has led some critical commentaries to say, well, Paul obviously didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, he was a city boy. He wasn't a farmer, you know, for crying out loud. But the fact is, these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Paul knew exactly what he was saying. And he's saying that the tree, as this family of God, the tree had become lifeless and, and wasn't bearing fruit, and so... So God cut off some of the branches, right, that, that were barren of fruit and grafted into, these, into them wild olive branches, the Gentiles, in order to make the tree fruitful again. That's the essence of what he's saying. And, and guess what? That's exactly what happened. Right? The Gentiles were grafted into the family of God and the gospel exploded around the world. We are the fruit of what God did in the first century. And that's the point. 
The point is this unnatural way of doing things, this unnatural method can only be the work of God. Because God is the one who does the impossible. And then notice it says that the natural branches can be just as easily grafted back in. Now think about that. What happens when you cut branches off of a tree? They die. It doesn't take very long. They die. Right? The branches that, that, that get cut off, the branches that God will one day graft back, those branches are dead. Which, by the way, then points us back to Ephesians chapter 2. These branches, just like every other unbeliever, Gentile included, were dead in their sins and trespasses. These branches are dead, but Paul says God can easily graft them back in. Why? Because he's in the, <clears throat> in the business of the impossible. He's the one who brings the dead back to life. He is the one who restores and can restore anyone he wants to. He's the one who's in the business of taking rock-hard, hardened hearts of stone and turning them into hearts of flesh. See, the point that Paul is making about the gospel and about the Jews and about the Gentiles being included and about the Jewish Jews experiencing revival one day is that God is sovereign and that salvation and adoption in his family is by grace and no one, not Jew or Gentile, or anyone else of any flavor or stripe or color or nationality or gender or whatever you want to, however you want to divide yourself, no one has a right to be arrogant towards anyone else because they have not done anything to deserve God's grace. That's the overarching point, that God saved us in spite of us. And so Paul, what he's saying is, don't you dare give up sharing the gospel with the Jews. And don't you dare think that they're beyond redemption. And don't you dare think that you somehow are some class of citizen that's better than them. Right? Because you haven't done anything to earn the right to be arrogant and malign them. Because salvation, your salvation is completely the work of God by his grace. And there's nothing in which you can boast except the cross of Christ. And so then, with this very pointed text, what do we do with that? Well, again, the first thing, as always, is we need to repent and believe the gospel. And I say that, and I call people to that, because I want you to know there are people who will say they made a profession of faith when they are five years old, but that finally, when they were 20 years later, they heard the gospel and actually finally understood it, and then believed and was saved. I will always call people to repent and believe. Right? And if you don't believe, then today's the day of salvation. Right? Secondly, we need to rest in, our, in that truth. And praise the Lord that it's not something you did to make Him love you. Because guess what? You don't have the energy to keep it up. Do you? We don't have the energy to be good all the time. We don't have the energy to be on all the time. We don't have the energy to be nice all the time. We don't have the energy to give the best of ourselves to everyone else. Right? Sometimes we just, life's just hard, right? Praise the Lord that we can rest in the finished work that he's done and that salvation is his work. That means I don't have to worry about my stupidity undoing what God has done. And then third is we need to rescue the lost. Jew, Gentile, male, female, American, whatever other nationality, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter where people come from, what their, their political stripe is. It doesn't matter what their upbringing is. There's only one hope for the world, 
and that is Jesus Christ. And there is only one way through to him, and that is by faith in him and him alone. And that's the message that we have. We do not need to complicate it with people and by starting off and telling them, well, you better stop this and better start that. Just you need to hear the gospel and understand who God is and who you are and then put your faith and trust in Christ and begin to follow him. And the rest of that stuff will begin to take care of itself. We need to be the ambassadors for Christ reconciling God, reconciling the world to God. That's what we're called to. That means wherever we go, whoever we talk to, let us sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change our lives. Never give up. Make pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.